You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Well, I want to start with a couple of stories. I'll tell you about Gershom. Gershom grew up like any other Jew living in Jerusalem. It was the center of the Jewish faith there. You can see the purple circle. Gershom grew up to become, by social standards, uh, a good man, a husband of, and a father of, of three children, two boys and a daughter. He's part of the Jerusalem middle craft. He's a craftsman by trade. He makes cloth dye. His entire family converted to Christianity. They discovered that Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied and promised king of the Jews. And they were compelled by this gospel, this good news, that the rule and the reign of God was actually made available to all people, regardless of class, regardless of religious standing, regardless of works. His mother converted as well. She grew up in the old school. The problem is, in Gershom's world, in his city, Christians were undergoing serious persecution but not by outsiders. Christians were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen. His mother was beaten half to death. But Gershom knew what his family knew, that God's grace and love revealed to him through Jesus Christ and the King of Kings demanded his full devotion, his full allegiance, and he wasn't willing to negotiate that no matter the price. Because see, the gospel that Gershom had learned was that love, love doesn't choose what is easy. Love, love like Christ, chooses what's hard. Because what's hard may be what is faithful. Love does what's right, not what's easy. And Gershom had bought into that with all his life. There was a famine going on in Jerusalem at the time, too. The weather had been off, the land had been less fruitful, the farming business was in a terrible slump, and as a growing city, Jerusalem is becoming overpopulated, it's straining the economy, it's straining food resources, jobs are going away because there's very little work, supply and demand is taking root. And Gershom's only comfort, really, is that he has the church. He's now become a part of this community, and this church had learned from the apostles that sprung back for them all the way to Pentecost, that because the church had become a family now, they had to share with one another what one another had. And and so in Gershom's church, that's what they did. They shared their stuff. They shared their resources. As a matter of fact, some people in their church even sold some land they had so that others among them could have something to eat. But this new community that Gershom was a part of, that was very different than anything you'd ever known, this church that followed Jesus not only shared their resources with one another, but they made their resources available to people outside of their community as well, even though they had a little. And what's strange is that included their enemies. The very people who would beat them were the same people that they would provide food for. Because Gershom knew that one of the greatest signs of Christian love was generosity. 
And his church knew that too. Gershom was a hard worker. And as if living in famine wasn't enough and persecution wasn't enough, Gershom had a fear. And the fear was that he wouldn't be able to pay his taxes. See, when you didn't pay your taxes to Rome, there was a bigger price to pay than some sort of levies and fine. They would come and take your children. And Gershom's greatest fear was that he wouldn't have enough money and that his daughter and his sons would be taken by Rome and become property of the state. He said he'd rather die because of his faith or because of hunger than have his children taken as slaves of the Roman government. But then there's Agathias. He lived 1,500 miles away at the top, a place called Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. Agathias was a Macedonian man, worked as a mason, a good husband and father or two. Born there in Thessalonica. His work, though, required him to travel the entire Macedonian region. The problem was he was already poor and most of the people he knew were poor because that region was undergoing a severe recession as well. Not the persecution, but nonetheless the recession. Work had dried up and as a mason, there was nothing to build, nothing to make. The only upside for Agathias was that he was able to spend more time with his family. See, before Agathias became a Christ follower, he was a worshiper of the 12 Olympian gods. But he was compelled by this one God in three persons that his Jewish neighbors would talk about. It confounded him. He didn't quite understand it, but it was enough to make him want to know more about it. And Even though most of the people he knew were Greeks or Romans, these Jews had a compelling story. But as he met the Jews, he met Jews who actually believed in Jesus too. And then he discovered that there was that this God who was three in one, not three distinct gods like his 12 Olympian gods, but this God that was three in one made himself a human. And he was perplexed by that. Like fully God, fully human. And that he was born in this town he'd never heard of, begins with a B. He'd never been there, obviously. And that this God would come born in the small town to this sort of poor family and grow up and somehow change the world through his love and through his death and through his resurrection. And that was compelling to Agathias because that was the first thing he'd ever heard that actually gave him true hope. Because in Macedonia, hopelessness was the primary currency. And even though Agathias was poor, because he had confessed that Jesus was Lord, he felt as though he was rich. And he wasn't alone. He was a part of a church, and it was a very, very poor church made up of poor people. And they didn't have much to share with one another, but they still shared and took care of one another. But in their poverty, somehow this small little church had decided that they were rich. Because they took life together with Jesus as Lord very seriously. Now Paul had been traveling through the regions of Macedonia doing what Paul would often do. 
See, Paul had trained up Timothy. Timothy was the one who had started the church, or at least was preaching in Thessalonica, which is the one who actually converted Agathias. And so he had known of Paul, and everybody, of course, knew of Paul. Well, Paul's out there preaching, and, they, and Agathias catches word that Paul is asking a lot of the regional churches to take up an offering, a, a year-long collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. Because come to find out, the Christians in Jerusalem, like Gershom, are undergoing famine and undergoing poverty, but also undergoing persecution as well. And Agathias, he's never never been to Jerusalem. He'll, he'll never go to Jerusalem. But he knew that these Jerusalem brothers and sisters, though they were of a completely different ethnicity, that because of their baptism, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a strange thing. See, like... These were Jews, and Jews in Agathias' mind and his own upbringing were part of the problem. But Agathias knew that ethnicities had to be placed in submission to baptism. Their baptismal identity was what connected them, not their ethnicity. And Agathias knew what it was like to wonder if he was going to be able to pay his taxes. Agathias knew what it was like to wonder if he was going to have enough food on the table. So when he found out that they were undergoing famine and persecution and extreme poverty, his heart was wrenched. So Agathias did what any good church member does. He went to the elders. He asked the elders, what's going on with this collection? The elders had not heard of such a collection. They knew about the famine, but they wasn't sure. So Agathias told him, he said, Paul is going around telling people this, and why haven't we heard about it? So the elders were a bit miffed at the whole situation. So they went to Paul, and they begged Paul. They didn't just ask Paul, they begged Paul to let the churches in this region participate in the collection. And come to find out, Paul didn't ask them. Because Paul was concerned that they already had burdens to bear. I mean, they were already the poorest of the poor, the Macedonian Christians. So why put an undue burden on them? It was all they could do to pay their taxes and get food on their table. So Paul was trying to do the pastoral thing, but the elders refused to take it as a pastoral advice and gently called Paul out and reminded Paul that they need to be able to give too. And so they begged Paul to do so. But See, then there's the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a Different story altogether. See, in Corinth, it was about living for the Corinthian dream. It was a society of upward mobility and self-gratification. It was a society dominated by accomplishment and wealth. It was a messy place to live, difficult place to live, beautiful place to live. But the Corinthian people prided themselves in their self-accomplishment. Prided themselves in all they had done and all they had become. And as a result, the church really struggled to be a different kind of society in the middle of society. Living in in a society of upward mobility and self-gratification in the Corinthian dream, it was hard to hold on to the kingdom ethics and values and virtues. And they knew about the Jerusalem struggle. Remember, they were one of the first churches Paul reached out to because they were so wealthy. I mean, this was a wealthy church. And they had eagerly agreed with Paul that they would absolutely give out of their abundance 
to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem because they had plenty. But there was a problem. The problem was after time went on, they stopped giving to the collection. And so Paul wrote him a letter about a lot of other problems, which included this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul knows they need a little encouragement, so he decides to tell them a little bit about the Macedonian Christians. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. Say grace of God granted. It's important. That's an important phrase because Paul's not saying, I want you to know how awesome the Macedonian Christians are. He's not going to browbeat them and shame them into some sort of strange Christian comparison. He wants them to know about how the grace of God had revealed itself and worked itself through the Macedonian brothers and sisters. See, grace biblically defined is God doing for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. And so Paul just wants them to see what God has done through these just willing vessels, these willing people. He says, During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability. Say beyond their ability. They begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord than to us by God's will. See, the Christians in Macedonia will never meet those Christians in Jerusalem, at least not this side of glory anyway. And these Macedonian Christians, though, they, they were compelled by something. They knew that they were reconciled to these Jewish Christians in Christ. And they may not share a national identity, but they share this baptismal identity, and that makes them family. Matter of fact, using Paul's language, that made them part of the same household. And even though the math didn't add up, you know, because dollars and cents, it's got to add up. They operated under different mathematics, different arithmetic. See, they knew that somehow extreme poverty plus hardship plus joy equaled rich generosity. So they begged Paul to give. Because what the Macedonian Christians knew is that poverty and hardship are no barriers to generosity. Not when Jesus is Lord. Let me say that again. When Jesus is Lord, poverty and hardships are not barriers to generosity. They had received grace to live and there was plenty of grace to give. There was plenty of grace to go around. Because the work of God's grace and generosity is to make God's people more gracious and generous. And the Macedonian Christians knew that despite their poverty. And so Paul goes on and he says to them, So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace in you. Complete this grace. Say complete this grace. 
See, because somehow in the Corinthians' unwillingness to be generous, they were missing out on grace. Did you know that? Did you know that, that, that holding out generosity is to miss grace? Like, I didn't know that. But if they were going to get this grace completed, they had to press on in this generosity. And he says, so he says this, he says, look, now as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, also excel in this grace. And that's what he means. He's saying, look, Corinthians, you guys are good. Like you have deep faith, you know your Bibles, um, you, you know, you're diligent with your faith. You hold on, you try to fight for, for the right teachings, you know, you, you're, but this is where you like, he says, look, I need you to excel in the generosity though. Like excel in that part, complete the life. And then Paul says, I'm not saying this as a command, rather by means of diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. Paul could have commanded him. He was an apostle. He had apostolic authority. But he says, I'm not going to brow. I'm not going to flex my positional muscle on you guys. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to put your, put your love where your mouth is. Right? I'm going to ask you to, to demonstrate. Like, you can't just say, I love Jesus anymore, Paul's saying. You can't just say, I go to church. Paul is saying, I want to see your love in the form of generosity. And he could have browbeat them and probably guilt-tripped them a little bit, but he didn't. Instead, what he did is he brought them back around to the gospel again. See, so what Paul does in the next verse is he gives the gospel in money metaphors. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. He's anchoring it down into the reality of the gospel. And it's like Paul is saying, like, you know what it is you've been given. Let it take root. And know that you have everything to give. Nothing to really lose. He says in verse 10, Now I am giving an opinion on this because it is profitable for you who a year ago began not only to do something, but also to desire it, but now finished the task as well, that just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there must also be completion from what you have. For if the eagerness is there, it's acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you. Listen, read this with me. But it is a question of equality. Let's, let me read that again. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you. But read this with me. But it is a question of equality. See, the irony of this is that the Corinthian society loved them some equality. I think it's interesting because we love equality too. Unless it's going to cost me something. And what Paul is saying is he's saying your, your little social notions of equality aren't really kingdom virtues and reflections of kingdom equality. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying I'm not, 
I'm not asking that you guys suffer so they cannot suffer. He says, matter of fact, what I'm asking you to do is raise them up. Leverage your position and your privilege and your power for their good. And listen to what else he says, though. It's right here in the text. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may also become available for your need, that there may be equality. Look, do for them what you would have done for you, and if that's the case and everybody does that, then everybody's good. Did you catch that? Like, and imagine that, like live into the golden rule and it works. As long as everybody does. As it has been written, the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. See, what I learned in this text is that there's an upside-down economic reality in this text. The rich ones, who's the Corinthian church, they're the least generous. But the poor ones, I mean the poor ones, Macedonian church. <laughs> They're the most generous. That's an upside-down economics. See, because in God's economy, everything changes because the values are supposed to change. You can have a congregation with a lot of money and risk being poor. You can have the best buildings and the most resources. And all of that and still be the poorest church in the region. But you can have a congregation with a little money and have the opportunity to become rich. See, Paul's not allowing culture to define rich and poor. In the kingdom of God, those terms have been subverted. They've been changed. According to Paul, it seems that having little to no money, listen, please. According to Paul, it seems that having little or no money has very little to do with generosity. According to Paul. And according to Paul, it seems to be having a lot of money has little to do with generosity. Those are not assumptions Paul's willing to make. And the Macedonian Christians seem to get it. Because when Jesus is Lord, poverty, scarcity, not having enough, they're not barriers to generosity. See, here's what generosity does for me. Here's what a whole thing does for my own life, is it forces me to take stock on what really has my heart. It forces me to ask questions of my heart. And I've found that when I'm afraid of losing money or material things, or I start stressing Ian's college education, I start stressing over this bill or that bill, and it starts creating and welling up a sense of anxiety almost every time my generosity is challenged. And it never seems to fail that a moment of generosity comes when Allison's truck needs a big repair. Maybe that's why Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be too. And what the Macedonian Christians teach me is that if they in their poverty, that they were still eager to give and somehow were able to do so, so should I. And I think I am coming to understand why this is. Because what we know 
is that what the Macedonians had was joy. See, the word joy in the biblical vernacular means satisfaction, not giddy happiness. Joy is about satisfaction. See, that changes everything. The Macedonians, I guess, were just satisfied. I mean, I guess they were just a whole like a church of losers, right? Like that's how we would look at it. They're, they're satisfied with being, with being uh, have nots, I guess, right? Like that would be the hardcore judgmental look. But they, they, were, they, were, they were rich. They were satisfied because they cared for each other. They took care of one another because the grace of God was enough. And they were able to give out of their extreme poverty and hardship because they were convicted and compelled by this reality that actually Jesus was enough for them. And they knew Jesus was enough for them because they had each other as tangible, living, breathing expressions of the presence and the work of God. They knew that God had given them all they needed because they had each other as an expression and a witness that God had given them all they needed. And they were satisfied with that. They didn't have this mindset of scarcity, this what if we run out, what if there's not enough to go around. And they had far more reason to have that than I do. And I bet that they didn't just go around bemoaning the fact that how as Macedonian Christians, we always get the short end of the stick. You know, the other region gets all the good tax breaks and all the good jobs. Because when we sit here and when I find myself sitting here talking about how I always get the short end of the deal, that is just a sign of lack of satisfaction. So there's no way that joy can take root in me when I'm always comparing how someone else has it better. The fact of the matter is, not all of us have the same bank account. And if we do that comparison game, if we pursue that, A, we're pursuing smaller kingdoms, and B, we're never going to have satisfaction because it's never really going to be enough. Because there'll always be somebody who has more. The Macedonian Christians refused to let their finances be the source of their joy. See, I think there's another problem too. I think the other problem is with the word my. Everybody say my. My. One of my favorite scenes in... I think it's Nemo, actually. I don't even remember exactly. But remember the, the, the what, with the birds, the quails? What are they saying the whole time? Mine, 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 mine. That's like, that's us. Like, it's mine. Our society, like Corinth, is obsessed with the word my. My rights, my land, my country, my stuff, my church, my, my, my time, my dreams, my hopes, my. We are formed by the word my. And there's a lot, there's, there's not a lot of room for the word we, unless, of course, the word we benefits the my. And if the word we benefits the my, then I'm like, my, like a we. And that's not it. But we're obsessed with the word my. So I don't have time for your family because I need to have time for mine. I don't have money to give you because I need money for my plan. And dreams. I can't share my milk with you because Ian drinks two gallons a day. And I need milk for my son. No, no, no. I can't, I can't let you come and stay at my house even though you need a place to stay because I don't have room in my 
house. I can't go do that thing because I don't have time. I need to take care of my. And the word my forms us. And it sucks the generosity right out of us. So here's the thing. I bet you think I'm preaching on giving. Look, man, I've done it four times in seven years, so don't hate. <laughs> like, that's pretty good, right? Like, we don't do a every January sermon series on giving. But here's the thing. I'm not preaching on giving today. I'm actually preaching on freedom. You know why? Because generosity is the doorway to freedom. It's the only way to be free. You think about it for a minute. If you're willing to give, that's just an expression of the reality that you're free. You want my coat? Take my coat. You need some shoes? Take my shoes. You need my car? Use my car. You need to stay here? Stay here. You need my money? Take my money. I'm free. You know why I'm free? You know why you're free? Christ, he and she who has Christ has been set free. So much so that Jesus would have to say, and I mean really free. We're free. We're free to give because grace is free. <laughs> That's the point. And if Adam's free and I'm free, and Adam's freedom is cultivated and nurtured through his generosity, and my freedom is cultivated and nurtured through my generosity, Adam and I are never in need because we take care of each other. It's bottom line. And then when somebody else comes into mind in Adam's life and they're not free, we are. We can freely give and they can find freedom too. See, generosity is about freedom. Because so often our possessions and our money own us. Especially in America. The land of the free becomes enslavement because of goods. And we could learn something from the Macedonian Christians. That it's the grace of God that compels us to be a generous people. You know, it'd be easy to rest our laurels on the fact that we would consider ourselves a generous congregation. I don't know who gives in this church. I don't ever ask those questions. I don't have a clue. I don't ever want to know. But you know what you give to the work of this church. You know. And yet, whether out of your convenience or out of your freedom you give, you know. And yet, somehow God does all this work. He does all this work through this little church. So Paul would say, here's the thing. Verse 9 you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although He was rich for your sake, became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich. Then why don't you just give generously because you're rich, because you have Christ? 
or is it that you're just not free? And then Paul would turn around later and he would say something even more, I guess, indicting. Is he would turn around and say, so look, then before the churches, verse 24, before the churches, prove it. That's actually verse 9. He would say, prove your love. Not by how loudly you sing the praise song and how charismatic you are. Prove your love, not because you have all these great programs and you can fill a room. He would say, prove your love by your generosity. So I say to every family member who considers themselves a member of this church, every student and every senior and everything in between, let us prove our love. Let us be a people of generosity so that we ensure that we become a people who live into our freedom. And stop letting, please, stop letting your perceived lack to be what keeps you from giving. Because lack and hardship are not barriers to generosity. God's view of $10 for a person who gives $10 and they feel the gift of that $10 is extraordinary joy. Far more than the person who gives $1,000 who never feels the loss of that $1,000. I can assure you there are stories in the Gospels about this. One is called the widow's mite. And for those of you who give 1000 Give until it hurts, because you'll be free. See, seven years ago, I know I tell this story a lot, but you're just, I'm going to keep telling the story until Jesus comes, or like, I kick the bucket. I'm probably going to die of a banana pudding overdose, <laughs> but I'm going to keep telling it until I do. Seven years ago, this church tried to do just the faithful thing. We were $340,000, $20,000 in debt. We are about 150 people strong and in kind of decline. And this family walked into this church building without a home. And they just asked for help. And we as a church did more than help. We welcomed them and walked with them into a place that was far more important than a house, they found a home. And when this church did that seven years ago, another person come, and another person came, and another person came, and another person came. And finally, other churches in Williamsburg heard about what was going on here. They didn't talk about how good the preaching was, and how good the music was, and how great the facility was. None of that drew them. None of that got their attention. The preaching had always been good. The music had always been good. It just changed personnel. What got their attention was that there was this little church that was actually generously loving people and 18 churches who met together trying to figure out what to do found out that this is what this church was doing and those 18 different churches said, will you show us how to do it? 
And so we began to walk with these 18 churches. Tammy was one of the piloting people who helped as a, what we call a servant leader coordinator and a ministry deacon at another church and a ministry deacon at another church, King, Glory, and Grace Covenant. And we started walking with these 18 churches with this family. And this groundswell of a movement started to evolve into our city. So much so that when the pilot was over, churches wanted to keep doing it. And I'm I'm not an executive director of a nonprofit. I would be a terrible one. So we hired Tammy and started a nonprofit called 3E Restoration Incorporated. And four years later, listen, this is important. Four years later, four years from that moment, watch this, is it would have never happened were it not for a small little church who decided to be generous. These people's lives, and I don't even know how many more, churches in Williamsburg, Newport News, Fredericksburg, Dallas, Texas, soon to be California, we tell, we tell, we tell cities no all the time. Because this little church decided to do what was hard and what was right rather than what was easy. This little church decided to be generous. Let's keep making that decision because we have work to do. And I know that seven years ago, none of us ever conceived of something like this growing out of something as simple as obedience. And I am excited to see what grows out of the next seven years. But if you're a part of this church family, we need you to be generous. Generous with your finances, with your time, with your prayers, with your heart, with your hands and with your feet. Because who knows what God will do with a generous people?